Hello and welcome to season two of Refocus, where we talk to artists and music industry professionals about building sustainable careers as creative workers with a focus on folk. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello, folk friends. Luke Wallace is a songwriter, speaker, choral arranger, and environmental champion from the Coast Salish Territory, known as Vancouver, Canada. For 10 years, Luke has been touring, recording, fundraising, and organizing for people and the planet. In 2023, Luke was a feature performer at the United Nations Water Conference, the first of its kind in a generation. Luke has performed hundreds of concerts all over North America and spends much of his time speaking in schools about hope in the face of climate change. Luke's performance history includes the Vancouver Folk Festival, Seminar Roots and Blues, Vancouver Island Music Festival, and multiple independent U.S. tours. Here's our conversation with Luke Wallace. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Really good. Thanks for having me. Calling in all the way from BC, from Vancouver, huh? You got it. That little, you know, East Coast talks are always put me up early in the morning, and I think I appreciate it now. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you getting up bright and early to chat with us today. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a background, basically how you got involved with kind of incorporating climate justice issues into your art and into music. Yeah, I mean, it depends where we start on the story, but I spent a lot of time as a kid. My parents were kind enough to take me and a bunch of people camping and uh, all my siblings and friends and stuff like that. So I spent a lot of time as a kid out in nature and just doing the kind of curated campground run around with bikes thing. And, you know, that exposure is foundational. I think anyone who cares about the environment and feels a connection to the earth can speak back to moments in their childhood where they got to have that exposure and experience. And, you know, as I was going through the sort of middle education, high school space, I was right at a time where climate was starting to be something in the environment more generally. It's when Al Gore put out an inconvenient truth you know, they were started to kind of mainstream a lot of these conversations and they started to be a topic that obviously young people were drawn to and, you know, did some programs and classes through that, whatever, formative 15, 16 years. And by the time I graduated high school, I had the strong interest in, in the environment and climate change as well as music. And I was expanding my musical career and playing coffee houses and open mics and all these shows around Vancouver through grade 11, 12, first year. And, and then I went into a degree in environmental geography at UBC in Vancouver. So I was kind of pairing this study uh, of the environment and climate change and weather. And I was, I was really um, deep in it and really inspired and it's an incredibly interesting topic when you get into it and both how the earth systems work and the magic that is weather and rain and all these processes as well as how actually kind of straightforward human beings impact is and how we make climate change to be something that's so complicated when it's really quite simple in its roots and so I was studying for four or five years at UBC and finished that degree and jumped straight into a career in music that I'd been building kind of in tandem or on the side of this degree and always sort of contemplating and increasingly thinking about the ways in which there's an overlap between music and conversations about the environment and the ways in which we can use music to bring people into this conversation and bring them into awareness as well as how I can process my own feelings and the things that I was learning in university, which at, at points are pretty grim. And to have music as an outlet for that was really profound and useful. Was that then like a, a prevailing theme when you're starting to write? Yeah, like when I look back, it's a funny thing, songwriting, we kind of are ahead of ourselves often. And when I look back, I wrote some terrible, terrible songs for many, many years. But 
you know, if you look back at some of the earliest things that I released that I've done my best to pull from the internet so nobody ever finds them, they're all on theme as well. And it was interesting to kind of look back at a point where I wouldn't have considered myself deliberately writing about this stuff or to have a very deep understanding or a high level of awareness or anything. And yet it was showing up in my music. You know, I think we often realize we've been close to what we want to do for a long time. And there's often seeds and reflections of it planted in our younger years that we can discover later on. One of the reasons I've been so excited to chat with you is that during the Folk Music Ontario conference, you spoke on a panel, how to make a living as an artist without destroying the world or yourself with a a fantastic slate of speakers on there. I kind of rarely get to pop into those kinds of sessions, but I did get to pop into that one and hear you speak. And there was a thing that you said during it that I found really, I don't know if it was profound or comforting. There was something about it that kind of hit me, which was about like the burden that we place on ourselves versus the kind of action that we can take that can really make a difference in fighting climate change. And that there's kind of like a big picture and a small picture. And while it's like, sure, you know, recycle and compost and do the things that, that you can do at home, but that there is this like bigger picture of impact that we can make that could make some pretty big changes. I was wondering if you could kind of explain that a little bit and where that's coming from. Yeah, it's really a central theme in both the broad conversation around climate change and responsibility and all these things, as well as, you know, when we get into the nitty gritty of the music industry, and there's lots of beautiful conversations in happening in the music industry about our role in, you know, supporting the earth and rebalancing its systems and sustaining life. And, you know, when I think about climate and I think about ecology more generally, because we've gotten very obsessed with climate change and it's absolutely frightening what 50 years from now looks like on our trajectory. But we kind of call it carbon tunnel vision sometimes that we just focus on carbon emissions. And there's all of these other ecological processes that are breaking down or being impacted by human activities. And so I say that because we've bought into and have been sold a story just like that of capitalism, of hyper-individualism, that right now the rules of the game are set up for every person for themselves. And we actually, you will get the most praise and you will be the most rewarded if you hoard wealth and essentially achieve that pinnacle of hyper-individuality, which is top of the pyramid at any cost. And those rules and that reward system, what we are incentivizing is undoubtedly at the center of the ecological breakdown, because now we have a system that incentivizes almost 8 billion people to win at any cost with no consideration of the collective well-being. And unfortunately, but probably predictably, we've internalized that memo and applied it to correcting the ecological course that we're on, that we've been sold that same capitalist individual lie that if we just recycle, that if we just compost it, if we just reduce our carbon footprint, somehow this will get better. And, you know, British Petroleum made up the carbon footprint in the 80s. They invented the slogan to deflect accountability for themselves. And that has been happening as a media strategy for 50 years. Some of the largest corporations in the world have just been pumping in often positive frame public media saying, hey, we can do this. You can do this. You're the solution. And all you have to do is recycle. And when you just scratch the surface, it turns out Canada has been shipping most of its recycling to be burned in Southeast Asia for 
like decades and nobody knows about it. And it's like, that is reflected. I hate to say it, but that's reflected in almost every piece of the sort of greenwashing environmental individual mechanism that these corporations are using. And, and so I've felt very inspired and a little bit angry lately. And, and it's what I've been bringing to the stage or try to bring to the stage is this message of like, look, that part is a lie. It's ineffective. Of course, it's ineffective because that's how we got to this moment. We cannot use the same thinking that got us into this ecological and social crisis. The, the way out is a consideration of collectivism, of not only considering what is best for the well-being of all the people in our communities and all the species around us, but also recognizing that our power to change this system lies within that sense of collective agency and collective power and action. And, you know, we'd be far better off forgetting about recycling. I'm not saying we should, but in terms of what actually moves the scale and what will actually make the change, I have no problem folks driving to, say, blockade a massive oil pipeline. And we've been convinced that there's like a contradiction and irony in those. So therefore we don't, or I fly. And so therefore I can't say anything about the environment. And it's like, again, stop internalizing that individual attitude. Yes, we should be considerate of our impact, but only as it relates to our like spiritual connection to our community around us and to our whole. And I think if we can step out of that little silo of individualism and recognize like how effective we could be as change makers, when we step into a space of like collective action and community power, we will very quickly become highly effective in doing things that have a measurable impact on say carbon emissions, but also all the other ecological tragedies that we're seeing in the world right now. I'm wondering so in terms of like collective action, I mean, artists have this amazing platform, right? And you're community builders and have access to many, many communities through touring and through social media. And so it seems like there's, there's a real opportunity to educate or to have discussions around this and to see some action. Maybe even let's start with like, what would be like your perfect scenario? What would be like your ideal way for people to start engaging in that kind of collective action from an artist perspective, let's say. Right. I mean, I think a lot of, if not all songwriters are doing it because they've at some point been touched by music and experienced the magic of it. And they understand its immense power and sort of like unspoken beauty and, and power that it can have on us. And so my first, and I think the most important thing an artist can do is make art about it. And I, and I run into lots of people who are kind of like, oh, I would love to make art that kind of speaks to this moment. And it's like, well, then do that. And especially Especially be okay if it's not good for the first little bit, but don't stop when your first song comes out as cheesy or whatever it is, because that's often where things land when we when we step from, say, our own experience of heartbreak or love, something that we understand intimately, and we try to step out into something wider, speaking about an injustice in our community or the environment. It can come off cheesy. But I encourage folks to keep keep going. And I and I've I write plenty of cheesy music and whatever. Like it's nothing wrong with it, but it's like I, I, I hope that I keep getting better and that that with practice I can write more succinct music, more direct music, more indirect music, whatever it is to to speak to this moment. But that's my first one for sure is I think a lot of folks say, oh, I'd love to donate a portion of my, and that's awesome, you know, and do the fundraisers and do all that. That's amazing. But I think for me, that's secondary to like make amazing art that moves people. And if your heart is breaking over this ecological moment that we're in, make art about that and, and use that as your solace. And I think that's, you know, if I had a vision for the next decade, I would love to see the entire artistic community really go deep into 
this intersectional conversation around human rights and the environment and democracy and all these things. Like, I think we just need to flood the world with art and ideas about these topics. And I encourage people, like we all have a voice in that. And I think we all have such a unique perspective in how things are playing out in the world, whether you're like a, I'm like a West Side Vancouver guy. I'm like the most privileged kid around, but I can still write about that privilege and write about what it's like to have grown up in this country and the questions and the injustices. It's like that perspective still matters. They all matter. And so that's a big one for me is, is, is the actual art itself. And then second, I think like linking up with the people around you to put on events and to put on film nights and to bring music in as part of the, the wider movement to offer up your skills at like the rallies. Like I've, I've sang at tons of rallies in my life and there's always a need for more musicians who have those potent songs that are easy to sing and people can get stoked on. You know, that's another big one. And yeah, and I'll say, you know, I think a lot about giving money away. I think it's very beautiful. And, you know, I do, I do a lot of fundraising, but I'm also kind of under-resourced as an artist right now. And it's like, eventually, I think we probably as artists maybe need to stop doing that so much, playing for free because there's a cause out in the world, but instead saying, no, I am, I am inherently valuable as an artist. And this fundraiser night that we're doing for this old growth forest or to bring down this dam or whatever it is, the artist needs to be considered in that equation as a line item cost, not as someone who's donating their time. If everyone else is getting paid, the artist gets paid too. And I think that's a worth thing and it gets and it gets gray. And so I know that wasn't connected to your question, but there is a little bit of that gray zone of like, well, we're doing something for the world or for the community. So I'll donate my time again. And it's like, sometimes, sometimes, maybe five five percent of your gigs, that's cool. That's a really cool point. I think there's been lots of like kind of discussion in the music industry space about how the music industry can respond to the climate crisis and what we can do. And I think that sometimes, like I agree with what you're saying, that there's sometimes a lot of pressure put on the artist when it's like typically the artist is actually the most under-resourced person in that equation, you know, that there's kind of pressure put on the artist to like change the way that they're touring, tour by bike instead. Like what? You can't. Right, right. I love that perspective that, you know, the most valuable thing is is that art that they're creating and, you know, taking away resources from the artist to create their art. Right. That, that that message isn't getting out there. Totally. And I mean, I, mean, I think we got it's time to dispel the, I, I can't stand that that's the emerging opinion or consensus that somehow like this group of five people squeezing into one van, driving a couple hours between a gig should somehow reduce their emissions when they show up in the town and release this like burst of love and joy and inspiration. And people leave, you're, you're watching hundreds of people walk out of a venue feeling absolutely changed and moved and motivated to probably go out into their families and communities and be amazing and be inspired. And it's like, that's what the artist is doing. And I know I'm an artist, so I'm biased, but it's like, if there was anybody who gets a free pass on their carbon footprint. Is it not artists, particularly if they're going around trying to like spread a good word about action and unity and like, and of course it's the artists with the heart and stuff. That's why we go to these conversations as a community. Cause we're like, Oh, we care so much. And it's like, if we just consider for a moment, like say the ecological footprint of the U S military, just, you know, it's, it's, it's bigger than most countries in the world. And it's like, I think the footprint of independent touring artists should increase if we're out there being bold and saying stuff about the world and say challenging that war apparatus or challenging the massive corporations that are that are actually emitting huge, huge, unbelievable amounts compared to your little like 1995 Chevy van. <laughs> you know, like we really got to get that out of the way so that we can get to the actual work as an artistic community, which is making and supporting and elevating art that speaks to a future vision of humanity, a more well-rounded collective vision for humanity. That 
is going to require emissions. It's within the system that we're in. It's going to require people to drive around. Now, we don't need to set fireworks off at every concert. There is a limit. We don't need to Taylor Swift everything. But that's such a that's such a small amount of people. We can deal with that. But for the general 90% of the touring music industry, that's, like I said, like is such a burst of joy in the world. I'd like to invite us all to get rid of that. Again, that's that hyper-individual thing instead of saying, what are we as a collective? And sure, does anyone want to donate some electric vans to the touring world? Of course, get on it. Yeah, we'll use them. So you're coming from a place you've studied this in university, like you're coming from a very well-educated place here, but for the lay artist with a good heart and intention who maybe doesn't know a lot but wants to do something or get more educated on what would be an effective place to put their energy in when they want to contribute to this conversation. Do you have like resources or places that you would suggest that folks can go to just learn a little bit more about what they can do? Yeah, like there's a million. It's almost impossible to start. I think my heart initially is drawn to aligning ourselves and our missions artists with the mission and vision of the Indigenous people within the community that we live in. There's deep, deep parallels where I'm from of environmental stewardship and uh, the rights of Indigenous people. And, And we generally see that the most damaging projects in ecological expansion, fossil fuel expansion, if you will, of this in the part of the world that I'm from is always tied and paralleled with the oppression of Indigenous people and the disregard for their inherent rights and self-determination and self-governance. And we see that in multiple pipelines happening in so-called British Columbia right now, Trans Mountain Pipeline, Coastal Gaslink Pipeline, the Wet'suwet'en Territory. And so that's that intersection I was talking about of human rights, of Indigenous rights, of environmentalism. They are all paralleled and they all come to a meeting point and a crossover around massive fossil fuel expansion. And so I encourage people and the artists to start by reading and researching up on where are the land back initiatives, where are the First Nations communities and Indigenous communities, if they're not First Nations on the coast here, in your community or near your community or in your province, where folks are standing up for the well-being of right to self-determination, as well as the right for clean land, clean water, clean rivers. Those are often amazing places to start. And from what I'm seeing right now, those communities and that Indigenous leadership is galvanizing huge amounts of both settler and Indigenous populations in an awareness around, again, human rights and climate change and environmental stewardship and well-being. And that's the place to start and probably the place to just be because a lot of this environmentalism for so long has looked like, especially where I'm from, it's like rich, white, retired environmentalism. It's those of us with time and money to care about the environment because we don't have any other sort of like tragic things in our life. And that's a bit generalized, but I think you get what I'm saying. It was limited to sort of the environmental nonprofit space. And now we're seeing a big, big shift in in this part of the world where I'm from, where folks are aligning themselves, you know, particularly like if you look at what's happening with Zotin territory right now, that's something that every artist can speak to on their Instagram, can speak to with the songs that they're writing, can add their voice. There's call outs all the time for people to engage. And and I think that's a great place to start. Obviously, when things pop up, like search the landfill in Winnipeg, when things pop up like the Ring of Fire in Ontario, um, and you see all of these First Indigenous people standing up and saying, no, this is this is our land. This is protected treaty land. This is inherently our space and needs to be protected. That's an amazing place for artists to become allies and to align their, their mission with the, the mission of the Indigenous people on the land. Right. Have you found that in your art, in your songwriting, has there been some kind of like emerging, and we've talked about like generally like the, the way that you've woven in 
these themes, but has there been kind of like a shift in how you present them? Do you talk about issues like really specifically sometimes in your in your art or is it kind of more general? Yeah, I've been tracking this shift in my writing for a little while now. I used to write, if you listen to my early music, it was a lot of, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame. And, you know, it was really righteous. And I got a bunch of people, the sort of choir quickly jumped on board with what I was doing. And that was great. Um, and it was affirming and all that kind of stuff. And then I realized that, you know, in a lot of that writing, I was just creating the same separation and division that I was ultimately trying to get rid of. And it was reflected in the lyrics and, and my energy and the, and the way I went about my activism. And over time, I'm trying to shift my writing into a space of being as direct and unrelenting in the message, but not leaving anybody out. And I think the environmental movement, we've tried, we've tried the sort of like panic, emergency, fear, guilt thing. And it's just not an effective way to reach people. People shut off. I've watched it happen. It happens to me. What does reach people is hope, a sense of love, a sense of direction, a sense of vision, a sense of unity, a sense of power. And those are those are the things that I'm trying to write more about. And it's really interesting to, 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 to be so frustrated with the world and so hurt by the damage that I see and the suffering that I see, but try to channel that and transfer that into writing that is that is hopeful and that is inclusive and that is not blamey. And I will say that what got me there and where I'm trying to continue to learn about and come from is this recognition that yes, I think there's individuals within our political system and etc. that are having moral failings all the time, right? Like we can see them on display everywhere we look. And I've watched individuals that I've had a high level of respect for enter into those systems of power and then lose their spark and lose that moral clarity. And in watching that happen, one of the realizations that I had was that when, when we set up a game and the rules of the game are as they are, the players within that game are incentivized and rewarded, as I said earlier, to act in a certain way. So to be really frustrated at the political class when all they're doing is playing the game according to the rules means that we have to change the rules of the game. Same with the corporate world. It's like they're quote unquote winning. And that's how we get to this conversation about systems change. We can spend the rest of our lives criticizing individuals, criticizing politicians, criticizing CEOs for their moral failings. And maybe even we're righteous and valid about it. Maybe we're correct about it, but it doesn't change the fact that until we change the rules of the game or change the underlying system to incentivize different things, we will continue to get the same outcomes. And that's what I'm increasingly concerned with in, in my songwriting at that systems level, as well as at a deeper, more spiritual level. You know, I think what I've gone from too is this literal writing about pipelines, about this, that, and the other thing about this, you know, it's very material writing to the space of recognizing that we are in the midst of a pretty massive global shift in consciousness and that the problems that we're facing are because we're kind of stuck in this sort of like me, 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 separate level of thinking. And I'm wondering about what type of music and what music sounds like and what type of words could help us get to a place of, of a more like connected and interconnected and interdependent way of seeing the world. And, I've, you know, there's some amazing people writing music that just moves me in that direction. And I hope to continue that type of uh, continue on that path. Yeah. Do you have like a vision for that systemic change or a vision of how 
change is could be started? Where does that change spark from? For me, I have a lot of hope for the world. And I don't know when we're going to get there. But I really do feel that when we start modeling our systems, all of them from the intelligence of nature itself, that this thing that has been going on for billions of years, fine tuning itself, it's incredibly intelligent. And I don't know how much more we need to learn about octopuses or fungi under the soil to realize that the earth itself is like the most intelligent organism potentially in the galaxy. And and we are all little nodes on this incredibly intelligent organism. And that we've created a lot of systems that are in direct competition and and an antithesis to the fundamental laws of nature, Uh, nature being the earth itself, us included. And when our systems of governance start to reflect the way that the earth works, the way that the soil works, when our systems of agriculture learn from and integrate into the way that the earth produces its abundance, when the way we write music, when the way we teach our children, when the way we write books, when the way we produce energy is studied from the earth and is reflected in the systems that the earth is telling us are incredibly efficient. The earth is the most remarkably efficient organism at producing energy. The fact that we're caught up in burning these carbon chains or even the idea that lithium is the best battery, it's delusional when you when we take a moment and look at how the earth works, how a plant works. It captures sunlight and produces energy and sugar and stores it in these like batteries that are like almost perfectly efficient. I have like a lot of hope for that. And I think it's like, again, when we get out of this like tunnel vision of me and we look around a little bit and get a little bit less like self-centered and human-centered, I think we have the most amazing teacher around us. And again, this brings it back to the knowledge of indigenous people, which all of us have a lineage very recently removed. Every person listening to this podcast, everybody on earth is, is just a few hundred years out from being part of a family that was intimately connected to the land that they lived on, who had a gut biome that reflected that land, that had a resiliency, a a physical resiliency to illness connected to the land and a knowledge of the movements of all sorts of beautiful species and migrations and all these things, that's within all of us. And through series of colonization was recently removed from a lot of us, myself included, and I'm refining what it means to be indigenous to the earth. And luckily for us, that, that indigenous resiliency still exists within the cities that that our country has colonized and it exists all over the world and there's these banks of knowledge and these 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 hubs of ways of being with the earth that if we just are a little more humble and we asked the folks of the of the amazon who are still deeply in touch with that land what's it like to produce energy what's it like to be healthy we have those answers right now and i know that this is a long answer to your question but i just i just want to say that when we talk about this moment that we're in and and what we're going to do about it, I have to say that we have and have had for many years all of the tools and all of the answers and all of the technology we need to solve the climate crisis, to support the earth in rebalancing itself, to restore ecosystems, to produce the energy that the world needs, to produce the food that the world needs. We're looking at 50% food waste in North America. We're looking at 70% of global farmland used to grow grains, to feed livestock animals like we are producing enough food to feed every human being on earth and power every home like you know we're talking about an hour of sunlight hitting the earth would power the earth's energy needs for a year like it's all right there and we just the only thing i will fight everybody on is that we don't have the answers or technology i don't know how to get there i don't know how to move this behemoth of a thing in that direction but i know that it's sitting right there and available to us whenever we like 
Even just listening to you talk, I feel hopeful. And I love the idea of, of starting this conversation or leading these conversations with hope and positivity because yeah, if, if it's all just making folks scared of what could happen, you know, then it, it seems like there's the possibility that it could breed like an apathy or something, you know, well, it's, you know, we can't do anything. So, or it's, there isn't hope. And, and I, I love that that's such a central kind of theme to what you're talking about mm-hmm. because it's leaving me inspired. I'm sure it's leaving folks who are listening inspired and I have a couple of questions still. First of all, where can folks find out more about you and where you're going? Do you have any like any things coming up that, that you want to share with people? I mean, I always got stuff going on. The next year's coming together. It's going to be a beautiful year. I had a great time at Folk Music Ontario and looking like I'll be back in Ontario uh, in the summer, which is going to be awesome. And uh, I've got choral work coming out that I've been working on. Some choirs have started sort of vying for arrangements of some of my music. So I've been working with my dear friend, Sean Kirchner, uh, out of Los Angeles to make arrangements for community choirs and professional choirs so that they can start bringing these songs of hope and these climate-centered songs to their audiences all over the world. That's a very exciting new piece that I didn't even think about until very recently. And the CBC Music Class Challenge came out this morning. So one of my songs was selected for that in September. And it turns out, you know, it's a song called Turning the Tide. And both the classes that won the primary singing one and the intermediate singing one both picked Turning the Tide. And they both won. Ah. And so it's very, very sweet. And I've been watching for a couple of weeks, all these like 30 classes or something singing this song and making videos out of it. And it's a very endearing thing. And yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll be in schools for a lot of the spring. I do talks in school all the time and performances and I tell you the kids are sharp and they get it and they're they're right there with us it's amazing to talk to these eight-year-olds who just are like clear as a whistle and, and totally understand what's happening on earth and carry a, a, a huge amount of hope and a sense of agency and responsibility and that's always it's part of the reason why I keep going into schools because I leave there feeling feeling hopeful amazing can you then like just leave us with a maybe like an action item or an, a nugget of when, when people turn off this podcast or maybe they'll just keep listening to it over and over again i don't know mm. but we're hopefully you know leaving some folks feeling inspired where can they go what can they do what, what would you like to kind of leave folks with here well that's you can go a million directions but the one that comes to my heart right now is if you're already walking keep walking and if you aren't take a minute in the next day or whatever and go outside and take a giant 10 breaths in and feel your feet on the ground and bring into your awareness the quality that you are of the earth and I'm inviting everybody, including myself, to finally reject this story of separation that we've been told from the beginning, that the earth and nature is everything except us, and find yourself back in that massive biome and that ecosystem that is the earth and breathe the atmosphere in and realize that you're breathing yourself. And it's from that place of connection and wholeness as a member of the earth and as a part of a global community that we're going to build something really amazing and special and inclusive. And I think that's really is step one is we can go and do all these actions in our community and we can go and be a part of rallies and we can volunteer and be at the events and everything. And I think we need to regularly take a moment and breathe ourselves in out there and feel ourselves on the land and realize that we're not separate from this thing, that we're not saving the earth. We're actually like freeing ourselves. And I do that not often enough, but I'm going to go do it after this. And I hope that we can all take a minute and just feel connected to the planet and feel connected to ourselves. And I think a lot of the actions that we take from that place come naturally. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Luke. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much for having me. Hope to talk again soon. 
That's all for this episode, friends. The Refocus podcast is brought to you by Folk Music Ontario. Find out more by heading to folkmusicontario.org slash refocus. That's R-E-F-O-L-K-U-S. The podcast is produced by Kayla Nizon and Rosalind Dennett and mixed by Jordan Moore at The Pod Cabin. The opening theme is by King Cardiac and the artwork is by Jamie Carn. Please give us a download, a like, subscribe, rate, and review to let us know you're listening. Until next time, keep poking around and finding out. <laughs>